1: The Auto Sport podcast. We review Sebastian Vettel's Canadian Grand Prix win and ask if he's now title favorite. <laughs> Sebastian Vettel's third win of the season in the Canadian Grand Prix is arguably the most significant one, as not only did it give him the lead in the World Championship, but also means Ferrari won at a track that Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton consider to be their own. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to discuss Vettel's win, first is Glenn Freeman. Now, are you still recovering from seeing your hero Jacques Villeneuve in a 1978 Ferrari 312 T3, Gilles Villeneuve's Canadian Grand Prix winner?
2: Yeah, I really am. I don't know why I'm on this podcast, because I can't talk about anything other than... Jack Villeneuve at the best of times but particularly when we're at the Canadian Grand Prix so uh, as long as the rest of this podcast is about the Villeneuve family
1: I'm your man. Well as I commented while he was going around on the double lap he hasn't lost any of his speed. (laughs) I couldn't possibly comment. Which raised a few laughs. Now also joining me is F1 Racing's Jimmy Roberts. Now It's not unusual for Montreal to be a popular race with people, but you are probably the most enthusiastic journalist in the world about the Canadian Grand Prix.
0: I think it's absolutely brilliant. I love Montreal. I've been coming here since 2005, and I have to say now the Malaysian Grand Prix is off the calendar that Montreal is certainly my favourite. It's a beautiful city. It's a fantastic circuit. The fan base are uh, tremendous they um they love um their racing they're enthusiastic and um yes it's a, definitely a highlight on the calendar
1: it's a fantastic city and we're obviously recording this in our canadian townhouse in, in, in montreal perhaps you could explain a little bit set the scene for our listeners We're just uh, a
0: block away from the uh, vibrant Saint Laurent Street and there's a bit of a a festival going on there at the moment so there's lots of uh, um, bars and restaurants and you can sit outside and have uh, street food. This part of Montreal is um, incredibly vibrant and I think we've been blessed this week by the weather which has been stunning. It's been wall-to-wall sunshine and I was very fortunate on, on the Wednesday before the Grand Prix to go flying with Carlos Sainz. We went in a seaplane up to rural Quebec for an
1: interview and a feature you can read in F1 Racing
0: in a month's time.
1: Yeah, it's, this is a, a fantastic place and the city is, is so close to the track, it's probably hard to tell from the outside, but the ile Notre Dame on which the track is, it's only just basically you go over two bridges from the city centre and you're there. It's a man-made island on the St. Lawrence Seaway and I
0: believe it was built from the tunneling that they did for the metro system so all of the rubble that they poured out from under the ground uh, they they put together to make the um, man-made island and it hosted the world's fair i think in the in the 60s and that's you see that biodome um that's uh, you in all the photographs or on the tv broadcasts that's that's particular to this circuit and this and this city
1: i can see you've definitely been spending some time on the montreal wikipedia page which is very very laudable it's always good to get some nice feel for the locality but let's get back to business glenn how significant do you think this win is for vettel and ferrari i think it's really
2: significant Yeah, you know it's, it's huge because montreal is quite often considered lewis hamilton territory and in recent years that has also meant it's mercedes territory it's where they've been able to really push home their their straight line speed advantage it plays to the strengths of the car and to the engine And Ferrari probably in in recent years have had to look at this race as maybe one for damage limitation. You know, get as close to Mercedes as you can, make sure you beat the Red Bulls and just get on with the rest of the season. This weekend, you know, to come away having won the race from pole position and to clearly have had the best all round car. I don't think there's any dispute about that for this circuit. That's a that's a massive gain for Ferrari in comparison to last year. And they must be very, very pleased with themselves heading into such a busy part of the season now because it really feels like Ferrari are on the front foot, Red Bull are making gains and Mercedes are probably feeling a little bit lost at the moment.
1: And it's an amazing turnaround really because on Friday, Sebastian Vettel described it as a a disaster for him and Ferrari. He wasn't happy with the balance, he had a a, a slight brush with the wall at the end of FP1 which meant he missed 35 minutes of the, the second free practice session and the Mercedes of Lewis Hamilton in particular looked fast. If you if you normalised for the tyre compounds used on the long runs, the car was also quick. So it was looking like it was all going to go Mercedes' way, but then Vettel took Poland pole and, and took a dominant win. Well, and also we then switched to Saturday. The most important tyre
2: compound was a Hypersoft, and Mercedes didn't bring many of those tyres, hadn't really used it. And the softer tyres are the ones they struggle on the most, and really it was... It was from Saturday that we started to see the weekend unravel, I think, for Mercedes.
1: And Vettel's performance, James, I mean, he's brilliant in these situations, isn't he? Controlling a race. He had a very slight pace advantage. Valtteri Bottas reckoned probably there was about a tenth of a second advantage for the Ferrari over the Mercedes. That's not much margin to to play with, is it? I think when you talk about margins, I think if you look at them
0: here, it's been so close. For example, in qualifying, you had the top three just covered by point one five. Uh, seconds, and that's Vettel down to Verstappen in third. So it's been incredibly close. He was super confident between the walls, and Sebastian is a driver who, even though he's um, uh, he he drives with a with a great passion, and and, and you see that, and he's got a great l- love of, of of driving for Ferrari, and you can see that. I, I was. Fascinated in the post-race press conference yesterday, when he when he delivered his his answers in in what seemed like fluent Italian, and 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 you could tell that winning here for Ferrari, their first victory in Montreal for fourteen years, um, really meant something special. You saw as he leapt out of his car and started waving a Ferrari flag, and um, and 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 it was particularly apt that it was the fortieth anniversary of. Gilles Villeneuve's first Grand Prix victory here in 1978 so you you, you could see that there was a real um, f- sense of um, uh, this driving for Ferrari and, and what it meant to him to, to win for Ferrari here another
2: thing Vettel's very good at is is leading a race from the front you know he made he made that his, his forte during his Red Bull years when he was winning all those world championships you know get pole position build a quick gap in the early laps and then manage it from there and this was this was the archetypal Vettel victory I think you know he had he had Bottas covered all the time and apparently when they got out of the cars he basically told Valtteri that as well which I think deflated Mercedes even further when they found out that they were throwing everything at um, Ferrari in that first stint of the race to the point that Bottas nearly ran out of fuel at the finish and then they find out that Vettel was managing the race from the beginning so I think that's I think mean, that's really interesting, and, and that means that, you know, that's what Vettel's good at. We can question certain parts of his driving, but when it's all there on the table for him, he's got the car and he's just got to deliver, he can just, he doesn't miss a beat, and I think that's that's what he put in this weekend. Now, Jimmy mentioned the post-race press conference there, Ed, and I'm going to steal the post-duties uh, for a moment from you to put you on the spot because you had a contribution to the post-race press conference that earned you a ripple of applause in the media centre, would you care to share that story
1: with our listeners? Well, apparently so. I, I wasn't there for the uh, rip of applause. I'm not sure it's entirely deserved. It's a fairly obvious question with the checkered flag being deployed incorrectly. I just asked, given that this did impact the, the results, they called the race at 68 laps rather than 70, and while that didn't actually make any difference to the to the points positions it did mean that Verstappen got faster slap rather than Ricardo and Perez did lose one place admittedly not a points place so it, it does make a difference this is a a serious thing so I basically just asked the the drivers whether it's it should be allowable for amateurs to be waving the the checkered flag because it can have such such big implications now of course I think what, you
2: put quite a bit more emphasis on the word amateur when you asked the question I, in the press I probably did
1: revel in amateurs or something something like that uh, but actually as, as it turns out Mainly, it was the process that was that was to blame. Uh, Winnie Harlow, the the model and activist who waved the flag, she was doing it on instructions of the of the starter, who basically there had there'd been a miscommunication. He was a little bit uncertain about which lap was which, and I think he he asked race control if it was the last lap, and I think they thought he was saying, "Is this the last lap?" The Vettel's just starting, and it basically led to the checkered flag being waved waved early. And it's it's an amazing it's a bizarre process because you just think it's fairly simple just to have somebody with a timing screen on the timing gantry who's familiar with the timing screens knows how they work and just waves it at the right time I actually think in this case that having the the celebrity waving the flag, which actually I don't think is a great idea because it is it is a significant thing it does actually have safety implications which we might come back to in a minute I'm not sure it's a great idea to do that but actually the the FI process was was the problem here But the regulations
0: say that all flags must be obeyed. So when you see the trekked flag, you must respond accordingly. As you would a red flag, you respond accordingly. And uh, drivers would be absolutely correct to slow down. So it was interesting that Sebastian saw the flag being waved on one of the giant screens and then broadcast on his team radio to tell them not to do it because he was worried that um, I think a marshal started waving a flag as well uh, to indicate Um, joyous celebrations as they do and uh, he was concerned that the crowd we've had it in the past here I remember the crowds come onto the track after the race to celebrate um, victory Christian Horn. afterwards we were talking to him about um, Danny Rick's good drive and he says well he's got fastest lap which he set at the on the 70th and final lap and we had to tell him that, that lap never existed <laughs> he didn't have final lap uh, the fastest lap beg your pardon because um it went to uh, it, there was the countback and he um i think we, we he, he was joking about the the race wanting to to end early and uh, because um it, it wasn't particularly the, one of the most exciting races and i think ed you said to him what if max had got past uh, bottas on that last lap and he turned to you immediately and said, "Um, well, then it wouldn't be a laughing matter at all because those places would have had to have
2: been reversed. The thing that baffles me about this really is that part of the blame's kind of been put on the local officials. And I'm stunned that Formula One and the FIA has local officials from race to race who handle something as important as when something like the chequered flag goes out. I'm amazed Formula One doesn't have a permanent member of staff who's in charge of sort of races starting and finishing and that sort of thing. So... For it, I feel like you're leaving it open to be misinterpreted and and I think Charlie Whiting said something about oh I guess the guy didn't understand the TV graphics or something like that and surely that should be quite an important piece of criteria before you get that job. So I, I was amazed by that and the other thing that I think someone pointed this out to me in the paddock after the race and and then that it really hit home to me was the fact that all the teams kept racing after the flag had gone out when the race, uh, I think as Jimmy alluded to, the, the Rules say that if that flag goes out, you obey it. Like that is the end of the race, and they'll work out the count back afterwards. All the teams kept racing, which even means they don't know the rules or they didn't think they would be applied properly. But then we found out they were asking Charlie Whiting if they should keep racing, and he went, "Yeah, keep going, like complete the distance, just in case." I I can't understand how that happened.
1: Well, and, and this is the thing: there's there's serious implications to something like this. It's quite it's quite amusing when there's not much at stake. As wasn't Everyone here. got but away with it in the end. Didn't exactly. They? Firstly, if you had something significant happening after that checkered flag shown in an error that could have championship implications. Imagine in the worst case scenario: it happens in a world championship decider, and something happens in the laps that never happened. To changes how would you ever run like that and also the safety implications remember the canadian grand prix remember in 95 they had a problem with crowd getting onto the track at the end and um, i think mick who who's running seventh stopped because there were crowd on the track and luca Padoa got past him they were still racing and i think they had to reverse the positions there so that um i forget which way that's amazing knowledge
2: they were. that's up there uh, with jimmy's montreal no history. it's just
1: one thing i've always sort of remembered but it is significant and when these things have safety implications they need to they need to make sure it doesn't happen again they are going to look at it but this happened at china in 2014 uh, a version of this mistake so that uh, they need to really get on top of it now we have talked a little bit about mercedes james tosa wolf described this as a as a wake up call for them because they they didn't have such a great weekend are they are they right to be so downbeat and negative they came away with second for Valtteri Bottas and fifth for Lewis Hamilton okay not great but as damage limitation goes if, if that's going to be your bad weekend that's not that's not too bad is it? To be honest Ed I was quite
0: surprised at, at, at those comments because I actually think that it, it isn't really all that bad at all. This track favours uh, qualities in a car which are um, heavy braking, uh, tractions and low speed downforce, which which the Red Bull has. It also favours those cars with a lot of power and aero efficiency, which the Mercedes has. And I, uh, and one of the things that Mercedes did not do for this race was introduce their uprated engine. That Phase 2 engine, They they I think they saw something on the dyno and they were not entirely confident that it would have lasted the seven races it needed to and so they took the decision strategically not to introduce it here because at a more critical time in the championship that's when it'd be more neat anyway if they did in- introduce that then that would probably the, be the two tenths which would be the difference in qualifying as i said earlier how how narrow the gap was that would probably be the difference between where they qualified and probably at the front yes you can look at that a- a- as one example the the other thing that i think was briefly Um, discussed earlier was the mercedes isn't happy on the hypersoft tire and the tire allocations for this race were decided before the australian grand prix that concept of car has never really been very happy on that tire because of how it affects the balance and you could see lewis Clearly, over the weekend, unhappy with the balance of the car. He locked up a number of times into the Turn 10 hairpin at at, at critical moments. Uh, There's so many factors that that have um, conspired against them. But it's all all a case of um, they're all very fine margins. And I think to say fundamentally that they are... they have a problem i think is is wrong i think just certain things have conspired against them this weekend and he's only 1 point behind sebastian vettel so um i'm surprised that toto's been so i suppose it's an example of where they want to be and how how determined and focused they want to to be in in in, in everything they do
2: i think that that final point is actually really interesting that you you certainly can't accuse mercedes of resting on their laurels or their recent successes we know that in elite sport it's incredibly difficult for winning teams in any sport to maintain the hunger to keep winning again to to defend championships you know whether we're talking football basketball cricket and formula one and i think this is a great example of mercedes which has enjoyed arguably unprecedented levels of success since these v6 hybrid engines came in they've still not lost any of that hunger at all and for Toto to react so so angrily, you know, it was clearly a, a passionate adrenaline-fueled reaction I'm sure he'll be a bit more calm this week when they're back at the factory and trying to debrief on the weekend, but I think it's also a statement to the rest of the team, like the management are still so hungry for success, so nobody else can let their game drop by even a couple of percent and... I
1: think that bodes very well, because it, it certainly means that Mercedes aren't going to take this line down. Well, there's certainly tremendous frustration that this is a weekend they expected to to win at, and they didn't. I think that gave them a bit of a reality check, and obviously there are frustrations in the race with Hamilton having the, the problem with the power dropouts. They brought him in early to open up a few of the cooling slots, because they said another part failed that was affecting the, the cooling, although later in the race did have some power dropout problems again. So, i think there was this, this double frustration because they'd also lost a place to daniel ricardo who was able to run uh, overcut hamilton and, and get track position because of that that early stop i, th- I think they just felt that as, as Jimmy was alluding to there were lots and lots of little tiny marginal things that happened and mercedes was on the wrong side of most of them conversely ferrari which has over the past few years gone from a a team that you look at and you think, oh, why have they done that? What have they done that for? Weird tyre choices, strange strategies. If you look at Ferrari now, it's very, very difficult to question what they've done this year. And the turnaround from Friday to Saturday was tremendous. They were doing huge amounts of work back at Maranello and Tony Giovanazzi in the simulator. You know, they knew they were having a difficult Friday, but they, they got on top of it and they, they keep doing this. That's a racing team that is working very, very, very well. And I think as Ferrari's got stronger and stronger, Mercedes, some of those cracks that have been papered over by the performance advantage they've had on and off over the past few years, are beginning to show. They had
0: a, a, an engine upgrade here as well. Ferrari, um, I, I, I think, I think you're right that they, they are slowly, um, I, you say, slowly. It's been 11 years since they last won the world championship, and all you look back at all those years of frustration that Fernando had, and now uh, that Sebastian's been suffering. And there's still no guarantee they're going to win it because it's so narrowly close. And so, um, yeah, there definitely there are improvements, but they're so their their world championship victory is is long overdue. And and um, uh, maybe who knows? Maybe this could be the year.
2: I think whatever
1: happens when we get to the end of the season, it's not going to be one of those years where you can point to one thing. Like last year, you can say, well, it all started to unravel for Vettel in his championship push at Singapore because he had the, the crash at the start, and then Hamilton won a track he shouldn't have done, and then there was a sequence of Ferrari problems. But I think this will be one of those years you get to the end of it, and whoever wins and loses, you'll say, well, oh, that race, that little thing happened, and there was that little confidence of facts. I think it's just going to be one of those ones where it ebbs and flows. It's brilliant, because while there's not been huge amounts of wheel-to-wheel stuff on track in the past few races, we've got three teams covered by a tiny, tiny margin – and that we're getting swings between who's fastest over the, I mean look at the last three races we had Mercedes fastest in Spain Red Bull fastest in Monaco Ferrari fastest in Montreal that's not actually too bad that's that's the the stage set for a fantastic season and for Red Bull
2: to be as close as they were Jimmy read out the gaps earlier for them to be as close as they were in qualifying trim in particular on what is clearly a power circuit i think that bodes very well because we saw how good that chassis is now uh, in Monaco where it was the dominant car it was the car to have And Renault, I think, brought a small engine upgrade here as well. It's clearly made a little bit of a difference. But yeah, Red Bull have really kicked into gear now as well. And yeah, if if the gap's going to be big to the rest of the cars that we always quite jokingly refer to as Class B, let's at least hope that the the three teams that are in Class A are going to remain this close. Because we do go to race weekend now, not sure who's going to win. And that's brilliant.
0: In my column this week for Motorsport News, I wrote about, Max Verstappen, because all eyes were on him at the start of the race, weren't they? Six races he's had so far, and six incidents in, in, in those races, and what would he do into turn one? And I thought Christian Horner... Um, Christian? Is that... Um, I've given him a, a sort of Austrian uh, lilt. lilt. <laughs> You've given an extra syllable. Christian Horner. Uh, he He said to Max at the start of the race... Go for it, which I thought was a very interesting uh, line because after Monaco, Red Bull management were clearly frustrated with him. They've given him a massive contract. To uh, he's their golden boy. He's probably the third highest earner in Formula One now. Long term deal, and he arrived in 2018 as um, as if he could do no wrong, and then this litany of of, of errors and. And um, f- frustrations that this cycle of frustration that built, and then finally after Monaco, they said y- you need to change what you're doing. And I understand that he has less of an entourage here this weekend, doesn't he? He's um, so he's definitely done something. But what going back to my point about what Horner said to him was go for it, which which didn't suppress that wonderful racing instinct that he's got. Because if you say to your your driver, "Oh, you've got to be really careful. Don't do that," then then that's going to worry him in 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 a combative racing situation. But he did go for it, and he went wheel to wheel with Valtteri, and um, very nearly beat him. But that's it, 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 that was it was great to see. It was the it was the right way to deal with with Max's um um
1: the problems he's had. Well, I must admit, I watched the first part of the race down at, at Turn One too, and I saw that happen. You thought, oh, am I going to see them making contact and and a Red Bull and a Mercedes in the wall? But the fact Verstappen was willing to go wheel to wheel and make contact is very, very encouraging. Now I mean Glenn, on, on Verstappen, how important do you think it was for him to get through this weekend with a you know a good, strong performance, one when he's willing to stick his head in there to use football parlance and uh, and still show that spark he's got, but without things going wrong. And of course, talking of heads without headbutting anybody who was asking well, exactly. about it. He, his his he
2: stuck Ducky's head in there and didn't nut anyone with it. Um That was an amusing moment at the start of the weekend. You know, he's clearly fed up now of of people asking him about his incidents. um, But they keep asking him because he keeps having more of them. And also the reluctance, as Jimmy alluded to, to accept that maybe you need to make a change or anything like that. But I find it really interesting, actually, that Christian Horner said that to him before the race, because it was clearly a little bit of mind management. uh, Because I actually think what Max did at the first and second corners, right in front of you, Ed, you were stood trackside, was uh, he did he did show a little bit of restraint for the first time. I think the Max Verstappen of, of old, or even a few weeks ago, would have felt that he could muscle Bottas out of the way there. It was good to see Bottas actually stand his ground as well. But I think if Max was going purely on instinct, he he might have had an incident there, even if it was just small contact. And this time, uh, he made exactly the right decision. He, he fought as hard as he could into that corner. He made it as difficult as possible for Bottas but he also knew the exact moment when the corner was lost and he had to concede and what I thought was really interesting more mind management from the team was that on the opening later on the opening lap uh, he got a, a radio message saying that was spot on Max really well done and I think he was a little bit apologetic for not getting the move done and they gave him sort of some more encouragement he said no you did everything right that was absolutely right and if that's a level he can maintain now then this is potentially the end of the story because if he can he can get that close to the limit without stepping over it and can do that regularly, then uh, we don't need to have this discussion anymore other than later in the season when we'll be congratulating him for getting on top of what's been a really
1: rocky start to the season. I think the really encouraging thing was that he was able to bank this good result without being timid. The fact that he didn't just completely give up immediately at the start, the fact that he toughed it out, tried to stay ahead and then got to that point where he realised... Actually, yeah, I've got to I've got to give best here, and that's what the best drivers can do. They know when they've got a chance. They know when the percentage play is to to not attack. And Daniel Ricciardo, by and large, has been very very good at this. And I think we have to look at this as a as a potential turning point for Verstappen because I think firstly, just banking that good weekend will remove the pressure that he was unquestionably feeling because the way he was reacting to those those questions about changing approach. You know, this was stuff that Helmut Marko and Christian Horner had been saying. Not just, not just random journalists. They were absolutely reasonable questions to ask because the people employing him were saying it. And, yet, and he just didn't really want to engage with it. So I'm, I'm hoping from Verstappen's perspective that he's just able now to calm down. He won't start second-guessing himself and thinking, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? And he can just be back to normal and he's out of that, out of that spiral. And that's what Red Bull will be hoping as well because throughout all of this time, there's no question Verstappen's a, a phenomenally able racing driver and got a great future provided he can just get on top of the, these little problems the key test that he probably
2: still has to pass is being able to be that calm and make those right decisions when he's behind Yeah he, ha- he had an edge on Ricardo all weekend it was a great weekend from Max but if he and Bottas had gone into that corner fighting for fifth place perhaps and Ricardo was the one at the front chasing Vettel and whoever else or maybe Hamilton into the first corner would desperation creep in again there I think Max was a bit more comfortable in his own skin once the weekend got going here because he felt, you know, he was potentially the lead Red Bull driver and he delivered on that in qualifying. He was in a good position in the race. And I think so that the only thing really I'd still want to see from him is the ability to do that. Maybe when the race is going, is going wrong or he feels it's
1: getting away from him to still maintain that sort of that calmness of thought. And that's a really, really good point, and I, it will take a few more races before we can be sure that this is uh, this is that turning point. But from a perspective of what we want to see in Formula One, let's hope it is because it, well, it's good stories and it's interesting to see these things happening. It gets a bit boring when it keeps keeps going on and it's robbing us of, of good racing. And none of us want to be headbutted. The one thing I, I will say about Max from
0: a fan point of view, and I, and this is something that Nico Rosberg said to me at the start of the season. He's because now obviously he watches races as a uh, from a from a Fan perspective, and he said how disappointed he is whenever um, Max drops out of a race for whatever reason. Because you always know—I remember him saying to me—you always know that when he's in the race, you're going to see something that no other drive will do. He—he was going to an attempt to move, or he was going to pull something off. Remember that move on Kimi in Austin last year. So when Max Verstappen is in a Grand Prix, you can always guarantee fireworks, and I think that's why the fans love him so much. That's why. We love watching him race and i and i and I think that um if it, it, basically he shouldn't rein in too much that that
2: wonderful natural um showman style that he's got. Rosberg was here in Canada this weekend, actually doing his his t v duties and I think he he stopped by the media center to have a chat with you, Ed, before the race, make sure that he was uh he was saying the right things on t v maybe but he did he's commented actually post race on Max's performance, and I thought it was really interesting he described Max's weekend as epic. And he said that he saw a little bit of Lewis Hamilton in Verstappen this weekend, saying that when Lewis is angry, he's at his best and he can channel that into an unbelievable performance. And he feels that that was what Verstappen did this weekend. And that's the right way, really, to use that anger. If that's building up in Max, if he's getting wound up by what people are saying about him, if he can learn to channel that into something positive, then there
1: really could be no stopping him. Now, the one other thing for Max Verstappen this weekend is this is quite important for the engine he'll be using next year. Honda and Renault both introduced upgrades. Red Bull are getting to the point where they have to make the decision on whether to stick with Renault or become the Honda Works team next season. So James, is it time for Red Bull to go to Honda? The Toro Rosso performance was was pretty decent this weekend. Uh, We asked Christian Horner
0: last night what the um, decision would be for Red Bull and I think he said that they would, consider the end of June so you're right it's it's approaching the deadline for what they should do. Honda did bring an upgrade at the weekend I think it was in the round of uh, I I think it was roughly 27 brake horsepower which um, at this circuit was an improvement of half a second and the Toro Rossos were looking very strong indeed. It was unfortunate that um, Gasly had to revert to the old unit and so suffered a penalty so we couldn't really see his true performance. Brendan Hartley didn't get much further than turn 5 and ended up in turn 6 with no wheels on his wagon. Um but uh, uh, in terms of what Red Bull should do, I I think there's there's a two-pronged thing here and I think that it also impacts what Danny Rick is going to do because I think that his position is vital, and I think what Red Bull side in terms of their engine will ha- will probably have an effect on what Danny Rick's going to do. So I think I think there's something linked there. Uh, in, in, from an, from an engineering perspective, should they go? It looks like now that the the Honda is probably on a par with the Renault, um, and it was fascinating for me to see that the the Red Bulls lapped the works Renault team. So it obviously shows how how good their chassis is. What should they do? Um, it's a good question.
1: I'm not sure they know, do they? I think I know what they'd like to do. I think they would like to go with Honda. But for that to happen, they need to be convinced that's the right thing to do. They'd love to say, yeah, Honda's definitely on the right track. We'll have a works engine deal, great commercial possibilities, and this slightly fractious relationship with Renault, who they also suspect are focusing too much on on the works operation anyway. But just because Red Bull want to do that, they're not going to do it if it's not the right thing to do so it's a, it's a big decision but also the time pressure is huge now isn't it Glenn?
2: Yeah I mean we're reaching that crunch moment of the season where you get into the summer and any of the teams particularly the big teams want to get down to the really hard work with their with their new cars and a design team led by Adrian Newey is not going to want to be hanging on in the same way that McLaren were through the summer last year to find out which engine they're going to be using so it does feel like the timeline is um, is getting shorter and shorter because the deadline the deadline keeps moving. It seemed Renault are now trying to put quite a lot of pressure on. There was quite a lot going on behind the scenes this weekend of oh we you know Red Bull saying well we'll give you an answer by Austria and now Renault are saying nope we need to know by the French Grand Prix which is the next race as we sit here and there's clearly there's still quite a lot going on that I'm amazed that relationship somehow remains intact and they're capable of still winning races together because uh, they just seem to be constantly at each other's throats almost but it's a really hard question and I think it all comes down to the trajectory that they feel the two engines are on if we're now at a point where the Honda has caught the Renault it kind of becomes a race for who do they think is going to take the next big step Renault keeps saying that they've got more to come and their updates have been quite small up to now Honda have made a big gain you know Jimmy talked about 27 horsepower there but in fairness, they've they've had it to find up to now, so they've been more capable of that. Now it's up to Honda, probably, to prove to Red Bull that there are more steps to come and they can continue to deliver. It's a huge risk making a change here because you're potentially making this change really just for two years. We go, Formula 1's going to have a huge shake-up for 2021, potentially new engines, new engine manufacturers coming in. So Red Bull almost need a stopgap. And you sort of think that they're now so close to the front with Renault, Do you run the risk of that disruption? Do you run the risk of Honda hitting another huge bump in the road like we kept seeing during the McLaren era and it all going wrong again? And do you just stick with Renault and go, these incremental gains that we're making with Renault could be enough with how good our chassis is? I normally criticise people for being too conservative in Formula 1, but I do still think that the safe option of Renault might be the way to go here.
1: It's only the safe option and they would still, at worst, be in the position they're currently in. If they were to take take the Renault option, but the, the big problem is they've had this year after year this problem of track position, and Renault unless they can get the qualifying modes there, and that's heavily linked to what the the Urz can do, until they can do that, they're always going to be up against it in terms of track position. And I think that's why the the Honda decision appeals. But the, it's going to be very very interesting because with this time pressure, you know they've got a one race weekend's worth of data there, which which is useful, and you know no matter what they say. Red Bull will have been looking incredibly closely. They'll have done back-to-back analysis. They will know everything they need. Oh, to there
2: were there were overlays, you know, going between exactly. the two the two offices in the paddock. Everything was being compared, the, and the straight line speeds in particular. Obviously, what we don't know there is quite what the downforce levels were, because we've heard that the the Toro Rosso's were up on the Red Bulls down the straights. But could it be that they just weren't running much wing? Because that's what you do when you've got an underpowered engine. Yeah, they've they gained quite a bit of data by Hartley crashing out. They They lost 50% of their Honda data from Sunday. And I think really people were saying over the weekend, it was the race data that they were most interested in. Because most of the manufacturers, I think, can turn the engines up to a certain level on a Saturday for one lap. But it's what you can do over the duration of a Grand Prix that's a real indication of all the strengths and weaknesses of your engine. But the pressure seems to be on here. You know, Renault say they, they want an answer in the next couple of weeks. So I think this is going to move quite quickly.
1: But just to on into context what Red Bull's up against in qualifying. The Red Bull is the best chassis this year, I think. I think that's fairly clear. It hasn't always been the case in this rules era, but I'm certain that chassis is the strongest. Verstappen lost about a third of a second compared to Vettel on the straight bits in qualifying. And he was less than that behind, so... You know, you you normalise the performance for the power units, which I know is a little bit of a simplistic way of looking at it. The Red Bull is ahead, so that's what they're going to be very conscious of. And Red Bull feel they've wasted quite a few years, which is why I think they'd love to go to Honda if they can, but only they'll have the depth of data to really make that make that decision.
0: Do you not find it fascinating how poor McLaren are at the moment? Because they spoke pre-season about um, if we just had a good engine package we'd be in a much better position. And look at Fernando Alonso yesterday. It reminded me of 12 months ago. Do you remember when he retired his car and went and sat in the crowd? And he must be so exasperated coming in. with a. It was an exhaust failure, wasn't it? Uh, an exhaust problem. But I think the temperatures rose and he had to come in.
1: Well, he drove pretty well and he was going to finish 10th. <laughs> yeah. But Brilliant. Tenth. You, you, I'm sure he's very excited about
0: on, that. On Saturday, I went to we still call it meet the Ron, even though Ron Dennis isn't there anymore. But, um, I went to McLaren's, uh, post qualifying media briefing with Eric Boulier and Zach, um, Brown. And, um, Fernando was asked about the car, and he said, um, "You'll have to ask the senior management." And then he disappeared. And then they were asked about the car, and very amusingly, Ed, you—I don't know if you saw it—but Fernando's head popped up from over the uh, partition wall. Yeah, just and, above me, not it? And <laughs> he comically put his uh, hand to his ear in the direction of Eric and Zach to uh, amusingly listen. Anyway, and they gave a, they gave an answer, and they, they admitted, "Yes, we're not strong enough." Anyway, about five minutes later. He walked out with his trainer and um and his uh and his PA and that was it. He was back in Mont in, in in the city of Montreal by about five PM. He'd had enough. So um uh the rumors are more and more that um uh, McLaren. It was shame for Fernando because it was his 300th Grand Prix this weekend. They put on a bit of a show for him, commemorative T-shirts, but they will be doing everything they can to keep him. But you can see at his age now, what is he 36 that. Um, if he went to a competitive um, IndyCar team, that he'd ha- he basically wants to be winning, doesn't he? And yeah, um,
1: that, that's what matters to him. And coming back to your first point, McLaren said last year when they did this Renault deal that that Red Bull was their benchmark, and they've been shown up entirely by what Red Bull have done. Well, they've been shown up by the works Renault team as well. No, that's very true. Well, they keep talking about uh, McLaren. Keep talking about being in a battle for fourth in the Constructors' Championship. But to be honest, they were up in fourth. On the, ba- on the back of some good race performances. The race team itself is actually doing a pretty good job, I would say, and Alonso and on, on and off Van Dorn are doing a, a decent job, but technically then they're not in that fight for fourth place really, even though they're not too far behind Renault, but yeah, they're, they're, in, a, they're in very bad shape. But what Zach Brown has admitted is that maybe they let the Honda problems overwhelm them a little bit In the, in that, let's say, Honda was responsible for three-quarters of their problem over the past few years that gave them a free pass to ignore the other 25% of things. And now they've got this engine, the same as Red Bull, and suddenly all these other problems that were shrouded are coming to the fore. And they have had a wake-up call. And I think they've now started to look more long-term. And they're they're admitting now that perhaps 2021 is the point they need to be looking to. because they've got to get a technical director. They're restructuring all this stuff. Not only takes time, it takes time to identify the right people. It takes time for them to be available to come in. It takes time for them to be able to influence what's happening there's a huge amount of lag in that process so we are talking years now not not months i think 2021 is a
2: very convenient dot on the horizon for people who aren't quite where they want to be at the moment there's always one one of those in f1 yeah exactly Um, but what i thought was really interesting we talked briefly there about last year mclaren constantly talking itself up talking its chassis up and fernando was very guilty of this as well how many times did we hear best chassis on the grid and all that and we've we've got the answer this year they're miles away But somebody put Alonso on the spot this weekend and asked him that and said, you were telling us last year, this was the best chassis on the grid. What's what's gone on? His way around it was kind of to say that the chassis has different characteristics this year and that maybe the strengths and weaknesses have have changed a little bit. It does certainly seem that the car's not very good. I think you said,
1: Ed, in, in low speed corners, which they were good in last year. It's looked a bit unstable certainly mm. under braking on entry and low speed corners and on direction changes right from the start of testing and i remember seeing that track side in barcelona when you speak to the team they say yeah the australia update should fix that but none of the updates that have come in come in have so it, it's worrying. Like the australia
2: update that arrived for spain five races later yeah
1: something like that but it, it you know there, there's no quick fixes in formula one there's some fundamental problems in the way they are operating technically in terms of design team the aero side that need to be solved before they can do it so right now they're just in get the best out of it and you know qualifying 14th and 15th and they weren't even that close to being to being a place higher it, you know it, it's it's pretty bad for them we should just very very briefly touch on the driver who picked up the point that Alonso lost which is Charlotte Clerk. now Glenn that's his third point to finish in four races Ferrari have him under contract he's long-term seen as a Ferrari driver he's making a very strong case to be promoted for 2019 is not he
2: I think he's made the case now you know he he took a couple of races to maybe get his head around Formula One he said this weekend that the step from F2 to F1 was maybe bigger than than he expected and you know there are a couple of scrappy moments at the start of the season and people are very quick to jump on anyone who arrives in F1 with quite a lot of hype the first mistake they make is like oh well you're not as good as everyone said you were going to be but he's overcome that he's got used to the car he's got used to F1 and He's now delivering consistently over Grand Prix weekends. He's becoming a regular Q2 uh, contender. Uh, he's he's in these, these fights, four points. And yeah, he was a little bit fortunate this weekend in that he drove a very good race. He was in a race-long battle with Alonso, really. And Alonso had kind of beaten him to that point. But Leclerc was there to inherit it when Alonso's car conked out. And there were plenty of other drivers behind him. None of those were able to put themselves in that position to to pick up those scraps. What I like about Leclerc is that I don't feel that we're talking about him in, in flash points or great moments. We're not talking about one stunning overtake or a massive piece of oversteer or something that gets captured on TV. We're talking about him already as a, a guy who's delivering over the course of a full duration of a Grand Prix. He's, in, he's had a couple of races now. He's been in a race-long battle with Alonso. He's technically lost out both times, Spain and Canada. He fell behind him eventually, but... Imagine if you're in his position, how much you must be learning, kind of going to war on a Sunday afternoon against someone like Fernando Alonso. And I think he is he's proven himself very quickly. And to be honest, that's what the really good drivers do, don't they? There aren't many of the greats in Formula One who we talk about and go, well, it took him a few years, actually, to get the hang of it. There's normally something you see from him quite early on. And that's what's really impressed me about him. We're not having to look for... for for little pieces of positivity we can pick out. We're we're looking at sustained performance from him already, and I think that's
1: really impressive. Well, Glenn, you're going to promote him. From my perspective, I'm going to promote him. I always think when you have a a young driver of that ability and you give them a little bit of experience and they've shown they can do it, you move them up because they'll rise to the occasion. James Roberts, we'll let you have the final word, would you? Can you make the case for Kimi staying on, which he probably will?
0: When have you ever known Ferrari put a young driver in their car? It's not something they do, is it? Um, maybe Felipe Massa, but then they suddenly realised that he had to go back and do another year at Sauber. Well, he did, he? he
1: did three years racing at Sauber and a year testing for Ferrari before he got put in as, exactly. the, as the junior partner to Michael Schumacher.
0: Perhaps you could make a case for Eddie Irvine
2: going into I mean, Ferrari. Back. What? Sorry?
1: coming back and taking the drive next year. <laughs> uh now that would be a story. Well he he'd have had two full seasons with Jordan plus a couple of races at the back in the 93. So he was a, a he was relatively inexperienced in yeah. the F1 terms at that that stage although uh, an older driver at that at that time.
0: Rubens had had his um uh, a number of years didn't he before he, he went He had to 7 Ferrari. years
1: under his belt.
2: Lacey. Lacey had, what, a year and a bit when they signed him, but Ferrari were in a very
1: different place then, weren't they? Yeah, very much so. But no, you're right. The, in terms of a driver in their second season, it is very, very rare. And yeah. even if you look back, for example, uh, the late Gil Bianchi, he was on that pathway to being a Ferrari driver, but he had two years at Mauritius, and then the intention was for him to race for Sauber yeah. in 2015 and then it's like, right, see how you do there, and then, then we see what happens. So very, very phased. But, you know, you, what you're arguing there is what Ferrari will do. But if, if you if you get the phone call and uh, Marciani says, James Roberts, we need you to come in and be team principal, and your first job is to decide the driver lineup for next year, what do you do?
0: Well, as I sit in my desk at Maranello and look at all the drivers available, I would not promote a Charles Leclerc. I would keep him at Sauber for another year. And I would be... Busily um, finding the telephone number for Dan um, Ricciardo. Notice I put a little emphasis there on his Italian surname. Um, so you would say Daniel Ricciardo. <laughs> <laughs> Sicilian heritage, of course. His 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 father um, was was um, has got uh, was from Sicily, and um, yep, uh, I would not promote Charles, even though he's a lovely bloke and I agree with everything that Glenn was saying and yourself about how excellent he is um, but no, I would keep him there but he's, a, he's an interesting one, I, I discovered at the weekend, so Danny Kfiat was um, in the paddock because Giovinazzi I think is racing at Le Mans this weekend and technically Danny Kvyat is not the reserve driver so if Kimi Räikkönen falls down the stairs um, it will be Giovanazzi who will be in that car now, what I would like to see is maybe giving um, Leclerc a, a, a one-off race instead of, again, I don't think that's going to happen. Anyway, where am I going with this? So I wouldn't appoint him. I would do everything I could to get Danny Rick in that seat. But then that comes back to um, uh, if I'm the team principal of Marinello, that's what I would do. But again, they're, they're not a team that that um, puts two megastars uh, in, in, in the team together they always run a, a number one and number two and Seb is very happy having Kimi as his number two effectively.
2: Yeah I think Ferrari's actual driver strategy here is, is kind of one of the reasons that I think it is the right time to promote Leclerc in that Vettel clearly doesn't like a teammate that's particularly going to rock the boat and the last he was partnered with Ricardo for a year and didn't really match up very well to him, so I can't see that one happening. He clearly likes uh, having Raikkonen on the other side of the garage, not causing him too many troubles uh, on or off the track. But Ferrari's strategy with keeping Raikkonen shows that they're not necessarily that interested in the Constructors' Championship. And I can kind of see why, because they get an extra payment anyway, so they don't need the prize money. Um, So why not now, if you've got Kimi Raikkonen... um, yeah, you know, in his late 30s. Max Verstappen joked at the weekend that Kimi's old enough to be my dad. Um, Your dad? Not my dad, no. <laughs> Max's dad. Um, so if you want to move Kimi on, let's get a young guy in, a guy, not a guy to fill the space, Leclerc's a, a genuine talent, and get him in, let him develop, because you're not actually looking at him as a guy who needs to be necessarily taking on Vettel and helping take on Mercedes to win you the Constructors' Championship. Vettel will still have the run of the garage, the run of the team. He'll be the the guy that everyone gets behind, but Leclerc gets to experience racing at the front in Formula 1 because that's very different. You can learn a lot, like I say, racing against people like Alonso in the midfield, but the midfield race plays out very differently to what you see at the front, and that can come as a shock to certain drivers when they get bumped up to a top drive and, and it becomes sink or swim. So I just think there's a great opportunity here if you're not that interested in your second driver maximising every point that he can, get a guy in there who can maybe afford to make a few mistakes in the first year.
1: And I think with Leclerc, they've got a driver who will do a will do a good job, even though inevitably there'll be some things for things for him to learn. The thing is I never really understand why teams they spend huge amounts of money in making the car as competitive and quick as possible. The guy in the cockpit is the bit is the bit that ties it all together, that exploits that potential. I always think the team's input is to create the potential, the driver's input is to extract what the team creates effectively. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the way of looking at it. Why on earth would you do that, put in a driver who's not delivering at quite the same level? Kimi Räikkönen's had a decent season, but... I almost feel like he gets judged as if he's a someone in his first year, where you think, well, that was quite good, but he didn't quite get it together. You know, we saw him understeering off at the exit of Turn 2 in, in qualifying the usual, oh, well, I made a bit of a mistake in Q3. Which well, we've I'm going to
2: interrupt you here, Ed. Kimi Raikkonen Q3 errors, they do my head in. And uh, I, I googled, before this podcast, I googled Kimi Raikkonen Q3 mistake, and I got over 70,000 results.
1: Uh, from google and uh, i think most of those are in about the last three years yeah i, f- I feel like i've been in every single session after qualifying when like kimmy's been asked that and oh, it's jay he's got a huge amount of quality as a driver uh, but he, he just can't he can't unlock it and that's got to be a little bit hard work if you're within the team you know if you're working on his side of the garage if you're you know putting all that effort into making the car as good as it can be, and he's not quite extracting the absolute the absolute maximum for it. It's very very, very strange. But I think like you said, James, um, we'll probably end up with the with the least exciting option <laughs> next week. Well we're
2: season. coming up to that point, aren't we? It's normally around just before the summer break, isn't it, where and gets his traditional one year extension. So it could even be quite soon.
0: Someone mentioned this to me over the weekend and I think they made a very good point, which was in Bernie's day, he would have um done what he could have done behind the scenes to mix the drivers around a little bit and i think it's something that the new owners don't want to get involved in and i think it's very likely we'll see mercedes stick with their lineup and red bull stick with their two and ferrari stick with those two but what would be fun would be to to mix it around and i think um i think that's I think those sorts of games used to go on, but don't much anymore.
1: Well, that creates the storylines, doesn't it? The interest. People want to see different people in different places. It just keeps things things varied, which I think is a great way to finish. And actually, it's very apt because, James Roberts, this has been your Autosport Podcast debut. And what a fine debut it's been. Um, Thank you very much indeed, Ed. And I would love to return if you'll have me. Yeah, well, you can uh, head out the door and get in your seaplane and uh, head off to rural Quebec while uh, myself and Glenn get ready to, uh, to head to the airport to return to, to return to Europe. So thanks very much for your contributions, both. And please, everyone, head to Autosport.com to check out all the latest news from Formula on the rest of the world of motorsport, our plus subscriber area, all sorts of in-depth features there, including our ever-controversial driver ratings. You get the chance to tell me how wrong I am with my marks out of 10 for each driver, and there's loads of stuff about, the, about other categories from motorsport on there as well. F1 Racing out monthly, where you can read the, the fine words of, of James Roberts, as well as in this week's motorsport news with the, the, the Grand Prix report in your column. So there's plenty for everyone to read between now and the next podcast so thanks very much for joining us we'll be back soon with another autosport podcast